right. Or maybe right. clap. <laughs> yeah, there you Perfect. go. I love the difference. The difference in understanding what slap uh, or clap means. Because uh, oh, I said snap. But a snap. Fine. Okay. No, to me, to me, snap means you know, hey, you motherfucking piece of shit. Like I, I snap at you. You know, I get uh, passive aggressive uh, okay. or I get aggressive. Yeah, well, snapping. Yeah, actually, mm-hmm. when you think about it, it is also the clicking of the fingers. But uh, before, doesn't somebody mm-hmm. getting clapped mean somebody being killed? Or yeah, not shot uh, specifically. Uh, I oh, apologize wow. on behalf of English. <laughs> no, but yeah, listen, but you also, should. You really. But should. also, when you tell your bros, "Yo, I clapped last night," doesn't mean you uh, killed yeah, someone. True, it true. Means, you know, we're referring got... to the cheeks. Yes, mm. clapping of the cheeks. Uh, but oh, which ATs are my favorite? Oh, Hold on, we have a guest, guys. Let's, let's show some table manners. Of course. No, before you start uh, asking the guest any questions, I love that for the first time we actually arguably have the three sexiest accents on planet Earth all gathered here on uh, on the podcast, which is all, all obviously uh, Arabic, but uh, Hakim mm-hmm. doesn't sound anything like an Arab. Slavic, <laughs> I don't sound anything as like a Slav, though. And Swedish, he sounds like a Swede, though. So finally, we get there, to actually. Now, y'all wait just a daggum <laughs> minute. You forgot the best damn accent in the world. <laughs> oh, I baited Whatever you and you clapped. Oh, no. <laughs> I love it. Uh, lovely. Hey. Hold on. Before we're discussing this, uh, our lovely guest, Thomas, he was telling us about a concept. I'm sorry, what was it again? Uh, people's bear or folk earth oh, wow. in Swedish. Um, Okay. Yeah. So, so it's uh, <laughs> please enlighten us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's uh, originally it's it's a tax tax bracket of uh, beer. So it's mm-hmm. uh, it caps out at three point five percent. It's usually either two point mm-hmm. eight or three point five, and you mm-hmm. can actually get it at the store rather than the state monopoly. Which mm-hmm. tell tell our viewers a bit about that. To me, like that is the uh, ultimate dystopia. Like Sweden sounds like a great country, <laughs> except that thing. Probably, oh, y'all are healthier or whatever. But tell our viewers about you know how rigid the alcohol system uh, uh, selling there is or whatever. Uh, before before you get to that point, I just want to say that I think it's uh, absolutely based, and uh, it's <laughs> course, you know yeah, you know yeah, how yeah. Marxist lines talk about the withering away of the state. Well, I think of the withering away of alcohol, <laughs> of the store. and slowly but surely. <laughs> Slowly but surely, it's uh, <laughs> this is the dictatorship of the proletariat stage of getting rid of alcohol. It's the state monopoly. Sorry, go on. Tell <laughs> go us about, on, about people's beer and how this horrible system, no matter what this Sharia-inducing Hakim wants to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Hakim may be uh, um, uh, what's the word? He may be uh, dismayed Biased. to learn that it's actually a good system and it, it makes the the alcohol cheaper. <laughs> Oh, rip me. <laughs> yeah, so, so what they have is basically anything about three, above 3.5% has to be sold in the state monopoly, the state alcohol monopoly. And uh, because they are such a big uh, actor, they get huge discounts because, you know, they, they're buying for the entire country. Uh, so, so some you know things like vodka is quite expensive but things like wine and beer is you know moderately priced um, Interesting. and i think this is the case in i th- let's see it's finland has alco uh, norway has uh, vin monopolet i don't know about denmark but at least these around the baltic and norway all three have uh, the same kind of system but yeah, you're not allowed to sell it at the store, let's say. And the opening hours mm-hmm. are quite strict. They're not allowed to sell 
cold beer at the Monopoly. Uh-huh. Yes. Or the, it, how, wait, uh, how does that work? I thought the only way you could drink beer is cold. I, I don't I know. That's, I don't that's intentional. Yeah. So yeah, don't that, that's the idea. Yeah, the idea is you're not, you're, they're not supposed to encourage you to go in, you know, buy cold beer and drink it immediately. But the law isn't mm. written like that. The law says that you, they either have to say, sell all of it at like room temperature or all of it cold. Hmm. But I know of no, uh, no, none of these stores, uh, Systembolaget it's called, uh, none of these stores are have fridges. And then fall call is when people uh, create beer that is under what, as what you have to st- sell in the state monopoly as alcohol, quote unquote. So they make the low alcohol beers and that's what you can buy in like a normal grocery store and stuff. Is that how, is that, am I understanding it right? Yeah, it's it's uh, 3.5% and I believe it's only beer. So wine mm. and what's known as spirits, basically it has to be made from grain. Yeah. Otherwise it's either wine or uh, alcohol, mm-hmm. just a generic. Uh, even if it's 3.5%, it's kind of... Yeah. All right. Is there Swedish like grain-based, like just traditionally Swedish grain-based uh, alcohol? Well, I mean, you have beer. Of course, but uh, if you're looking at, let's say, a malt-based drink, you may be looking mm. at svagdricka. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite similar to to uh, kvass, actually. Yeah. Ah, yeah. uh-huh, okay. Mm-hmm. And there's non-alcoholic kvass that's nice, Hakim. If you haven't tried it, I've heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard. I remember in uh, what's it called? Uh, I remember the first time I encountered kvass was in the movie, uh, the Soviet movie, oh, yeah. uh, Kidnapping <laughs> Caucasian Style, which is a fantastic film. That I highly recommend everybody watch. It was shot in Crimea. It's a beautiful, beautiful mm. movie. Uh, but I remember, yeah, you see, you see these like you know, basically kidnapper dudes, and they just huddle around this thing, uh, and they down this fucking, and they <laughs> make it look like it's the most delicious thing on earth. I'm like, hey, you know what? <laughs> Maybe they got a point. <laughs> but yeah. but no, hold on, because again, again, I know that I don't know shit about alcohol. I just know that some national spirits or hard liquor is usually like uh, potato based mm-hmm. or other kind of root vegetable or something like that based. Isn't rakia basically like this, Yugopnik, or is that fruit-based? Uh, yeah, that's mostly fruit-based, but uh, you're, you're completely yeah. right. Usually, um, the development of uh, uh, traditional alcoholic beverages was directly linked to uh, whatever type of uh, fruit, vegetable, or grain they created in surplus on average. Yeah. So they yeah. uh, wondered what to do with the surplus. Uh, and most of the time, the m- extremely pragmatic thing to do is uh, is create uh, create alcohol. Probably even originally, certain alcohols were developed in those particular regions when you know you would store a shit ton of, for example, plums, and some of them would mm-hmm. literally get so old that they would ferment. And somebody was probably like crazy enough to be like, "Oh, let's try and try this <laughs> fermented stuff." And all of a sudden, oh my god, it has a funny effect on my head. And then you know mm-hmm. it continued, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No, actually, the and ironically, the original. Uh, what we know as the originator of alcohol is actually from uh, your beautiful people, uh, specifically mm. around the, the region of uh, Syria, uh, Iran, and Iraq, actually. But it was mm. originally developed quite literally as an antiseptic, you know, to uh, for cutting off limbs, cutting off fingers, etc. So doctors from your region invented <laughs> the poison that you despise through the, the mm. bottom of your soul. So <laughs> hey. you see the beautiful karma of the world. But what's extremely interesting, and obviously we're going to cover to a great extent in this uh, incredible episode that we pro- we have prepared for you is uh, I, I, like because it is state run and state organized in the long run it actually ended up being 
cheaper for the everyday consumer uh, in case of, uh, of obviously the Nordics and uh, the selling of alcohol. Probably if that same like uh, system is maybe applied to uh, to other consumables, maybe we would see we would see the same uh, the same result. You know, who said that you know competition yeah, getting, leads to lower you're, prices? As cliche, you're as getting it is. dangerously close to <laughs> calling for nationalization of core industries. You're being mm. sound like a communist. <laughs> no, my my question just uh, because again uh, the, the the one thing that I know of because you mentioned an interesting point. Uh, uh, of it being the the relevant like thing that's grown in the area that's in surplus in Iraq we have something called Arag which is basically the um, uh, date distilled date syrup or dates mm. with mixed with yeast and water one and then it's distilled and it's like a hard spirit um, that some people drink uh, I'm wondering nice. does Sweden have anything like this specifically like the traditional hard liquor or spirit that's just a Swedish thing uh, no I would say Sweden Sweden is part of the uh, vodka belt so I, mm-hmm. it would be vodka really? yeah I mean, before you you obviously have you know various uh, berry you know fruit fruit wines and stuff and beer, mm. but it's 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 only with the arrival of the potato, and it's even such that uh, Swedes don't like potatoes when they first arrive uh, from the new world until they figure out they can make, make alcohol from them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this actually what... leads yeah this leads to huge like societal problems. You have a, a temperance mm. movement in Sweden popping up in the 1800s. Swedish had a referendum on banning alcohol in the early 1900s, like the 1910s, mm. and it was oh, wow. very close. It was like 50 something to 40 something. Wow, very based, <laughs> very yeah. based. And that, that's also, I'm just saying the statistic of the I mean, we yeah. see the 1920s in the states, what you know, banning even yeah. even this sort of narcotic, which it is a narcotic. Yeah, yeah. No. and they, uh, that, that's I mean, why we have the system we have today. So previously, mm. they had a system with um, rationing as well, like uh, ration coupons. But your ration was determined by a uh, your sex. So if you were a man, oh, interesting. you you got a, a much larger. I believe women didn't get any. And if you are uh, part of the aristocracy or the bourgeoisie, you also get a bigger uh, allotment. So um, yeah, and they they got rid of that because that was deemed you know not not. Uh, Cringe. Uh, yeah. Cringe, basically, yes. <laughs> there was an official referendum and then it was decided the king established that. It is indeed cringe. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, we have a king, by for the way. absolutely everyone. Yeah, I know, and he's kind of famous. Yeah, well, I mean, he's... For his he's, uh, yeah, he's for, Oh, yeah, he's famous for his silly hats. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Especially among... <laughs> Uh, yeah, but not like you know, um, no, I mean probably most people know this but uh, you know Sweden produces arguably one of the most famous vodkas on planet earth and one that is sold both in the east and the west massively which is absolute vodka which also like has arguably uh-huh. one of the best branding ever uh, and funny enough like back in the day when it was like even more of a hardcore sellout I worked on like advertising campaigns on it and they sent a few guys over to Sweden to see the factory and it's absolutely uh, apparently a uh, you know uh, a 
product which is like 100% quote-unquote sustainable. Obviously, it's not sustainable when it comes to the labor exploitation of the people that toil away mm-hmm. in its factories. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, even even like the uh, gas that is emitted during the production, they like resell to, for example, Coca-Cola to make uh, to make it sparkly, et cetera, et cetera. It's like a 100% utilized thing, which again leads us to, you know, the conversation that we're going to have later is, oh, maybe if everything is properly planned, uh, uh, adequately systemized, maybe, you know, uh, it can be uh, 100% arguably uh, environmentally sustainable. But, uh, you know. But what about no, the shareholders? Need... What about the shareholders? Mm. Yeah. What about the profit? <laughs> exactly. But yeah, good job on Absolute Vodka. I'll give you that. It's not bad. It's like always, uh, it's like constantly mid. That is very difficult to achieve. You know, it's mid. It's not great, but it's constantly mid. You like never like try it and you're like, oh my God, I'm about to die. You know, it's always mm. fine. I, I have a, wait, I have a sound clip here for you. The cause of and solution to all of life's problems. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Deep Program. Today, we have a very special episode with a fantastic guest. Uh, he is a great Swedish comrade uh, and free software enjoyer, as he self-described. Nice. <laughs> um, I, I think a more apt uh, title and definitely more badass title is a cybernetic Marxist or cybernetic socialist. Um, he has a lot of interesting work uh, that he uh, writes about, has also made several videos about in regards to economic planning, uh, as well as being basically fairly competent in these spheres, which the vast majority of Marxists, including us on the podcast, basically know dog <laughs> shit about. We know nothing about it. Uh, so I'll, I'll hand it off to Thomas. Please uh, introduce yourself and then the, uh, let, no, let people know where they can find you. And uh, you can start with your uh, lovely, lovely intro and presentation. Okay, right. Uh, my name is Thomas Herlin, and uh, I live in Umeå in northern Sweden, so uh, about uh, what is 60 degrees something north. Um, so I, I have a blog at uh, hairdin.se, H-A-E-R-D-I-N.se, uh, and uh, I write about, especially about planning and mathematics and socialism, and also other things like electronics, but... That's perhaps not relevant to this discussion. I also make YouTube videos. Uh, recently started, uh, let's say, uh, translating my work for YouTube. The, yeah, I'm also involved in the academic discussion around planning. Which is beyond based, honestly. It's something that's very, very required. Um, it's good that very people impressive. make videos about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's exceptional that people are actually making basically theory is what is what it is um but yeah all the links uh, for anybody interested will be available in the show notes and of course uh we'll shout them out again at the end of the episode uh today's episode will be a little bit different uh rather than just kind of bantering throughout the entire episode and questions and discussions back and forth we thought it'd make a little more sense to have a bit more of a presentation uh from tomas and then we'll have we'll pretend to be the audience (laughs) we'll interject with our questions uh, throughout to kind of like uh, deepen the, the analysis and to get more information and more um, make everything a lot more clear uh, for us as well as for everybody listening at home. Uh, so basically, yeah, you're here. For, you're here. You're in here for a lecture. Okay, it's not all just fun and games. <laughs> Being a Marxist means math. So <laughs> no. this is your time to leave the movement. <laughs> yes, I, I'm afraid we're going to have to do math.
Oh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh everyone, this is when I log off. This social democracy stuff's looking pretty good, guys. Yeah. I don't know, I'm kidding. I'm going to tell you all up front, I, I, I can count the six or seven, but uh, when my teacher put in the, them letters instead of uh, just the numbers, boy, I tell you what, I almost ran out the room. And now y'all are trying to tell me you need multidimensional polygon. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh, all right please please intro us i thought oh marxism god. was just shooting rich people jesus <laughs> christ okay yeah. all right all right we're done okay okay we're done apologies sir right so so uh, our listeners might be asking themselves like what is planning even and it may surprise them to learn that they have probably encountered a form of planning in a virtual world which are a lot of video games especially strategy games and and the like where you have to gather resources in for example starcraft you have to gather mineral and gas you don't have like money in there and you you have to sort of household with these resources in in order to reach your goal of course the goal in starcraft is to to crush your enemy rather than having a, a functioning and sustainable and you know good society but but still video games provides like a a concrete example of of planning because you're seldom well some games are of course have money internally but a lot of them are just in terms of just the resources so for example workers and resources soviet republic uh, yeah so so i thought i'd uh, begin with uh, uh, asking a rhetorical pl- question here which is what is planning and uh, planning is calculation in kind so it is calculating in terms of physical goods uh, to organize your economy rather than relying on exchange. So this means that you um, you run your economy in terms of you know lum- number of planks of wood of a certain dimension, number of boots, uh, number of cans of beer, and um, the role of money or means of payment, if if it even has a role, is is primarily secondary. I would like to just make a comment on that. It's a point that Cockshot's made in his video on uh, in how social, how exactly the USSR was socialist, and he specifically mentions this point in that money was not a direct indicator of your ability to attain goods, uh, insofar as the, of course uh, production wasn't linked to market mechanisms; it was linked to a plan. So there's no major supply demand, supply and demand uh, aspect there. And what that meant is that it doesn't really matter how much money you have; uh, it doesn't that doesn't translate to you being able to go and buy up more stuff. Uh, so again, yeah, exactly. It's a secondary role, which is kind of a a step towards you know decommodification, if you even want to word it that way. Um, but sorry, go on. Yeah, no, no, that that's a, a good point. Like it, it's um, you can choose what kind of means of payment you have in the system. Uh, and we, we can get to that point later. So uh, the second rhetorical question we could ask is uh, why planning? One reason is that a planned economy cannot crash. Mm. In a planned economy, you don't do not have a business cycle. You don't have a, you know, a cycle of, of a recession followed by a gallop in market followed by another recession and so on and so on. But instead you can sort of know uh, roughly where the economy will be in you know five or ten or possibly even a hundred years you know that it's it's stable another thing that you can do is you can introduce explicit environmental constraints you, you can say that for example we should ensure that carbon sequestration is greater than the emissions so that we're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere rather than putting it into the atmosphere 
finally, we can choose to have either a, a shortage economy, like in the Soviet Union, it's quite notorious for this, uh, or you can have a surplus economy where you deliberately uh, produce more than it's actually necessary, uh, or you can try and you know do something kind of in between. Yeah, could you elaborate a little bit on that point? Because uh, a lot of the, um, or just like a quick addendum, right? Because a lot of the common perceptions of uh, shortages, chronic shortages in the USSR aren't, they're not real. Uh, uh, there's the three points, the early period, of course, where there wasn't barely no planning, World War II, which is understandable, and the end uh, of the Soviet Union, which uh, in which they start introducing market mechanisms. Uh, and there was, of course, direct sabotage and whatnot. It's a very uh, long story there. But those are the major periods where there were shortages of goods. But otherwise, um, I'm assuming what you mean is that Soviet planning for production was more made so that uh, you didn't produce above everything that's required uh, you produce that what is required and sometimes that would fall underneath which would result in a shortage and that's a way of kind of saving materials in the end I'm assuming that's what you're referring to uh, yeah there is a bit of a, um, a tension between uh, say, say if you want to maximize the growth of your economy then you're going to want to run up as close as possible against the production constraints so Let's say um, you want to maximally utilize your steel production capacity. This can give you really good growth in, in industries that depend on steel. But as soon as there's any kind of disturbance, and this could be like anything, like you, I don't know, it, uh, someone's sick one natural day or whatever. Natural disaster or something. Yeah, natural yeah. disaster mm -hmm. or just, I don't know, a problem in the, in the rail network or, or whatever. Such problems can tend to amplify themselves and you can get compounding problems if you make it too stiff so there is a kind mm -hmm. of a you have to weigh it against uh, these things against against each other basically mm -hmm. balancing game yeah yeah it's a balancing act between these these uh, contradicting sort of interests so uh, i thought i'd talk a little bit about the history of planning if we start with uh, marx and engels uh, they are not super explicit about this uh, especially, especially Marx. He he suggests that it might be possible. I believe in uh, the critique of the Gotha program, but it's very sort of it's not very concrete. Engels, on the other hand, gets more explicit with this in Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific. Like he makes, for example, comparisons to the Alkali trusts in England, I believe, where they they basically organize production. They conspire to organize production between each other, sort of like, you, you do this much, you do that much. Uh, the kind of stuff that happens in a monopoly. And he kind of sees that, uh, like, wait a minute, couldn't workers do the same thing? Like, there there seems to be a, a possibility here to to have a, like a, a deliberate, deliberate action in the economy. He makes a comparison between the organized nature of the, the trusts compared to the anarchy of the market. So the sort of chaotic production in the market where you're going from a, you know an overproduction to underproduction back into overproduction mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, compared to these cases where, where even the, the uh, capitalists amongst each other deliberately sort of plan what to do. But even with, with Engels, is, this is not very developed. He, he also kind of, he gets a little bit more concrete with it, but it, it's still sort of abstract. We might want to explain to the listeners here the, the, the uh, one fundamental difference here is in a planned economy, you're talking only in terms of use values rather than exchange values. So that's Marx and Engels. Where this starts getting 
concrete is with uh, Otto Neurath, who was an Austrian socialist. He was involved in the Austro-Hungarian war economy. So what Austria-Hungary does before the Great War breaks out is they, they establish something called the War Preparedness Acts of like 1910-1911, where the state reserves the right to basically expropriate any means of production necessary in case of war. So this is what Austria-Hungary does in 1914 when war breaks out. And Neurath is employed in this system that arises in the so-called war centers or the Kriegszentralen. And uh, they basically, they run an in-kind economy during the war. And the reason is, as Neurath puts it, you win war using bullets and bombs and bread and not money. After the war, what Neurat suggests is that you can use, potentially use a similar system, but for peaceful ends. So instead of, again, instead of producing bullets and bombs, let's produce cake and boots and whatever. He uh, puts uh, this idea forward in the short-lived Bavarian Soviet Republic in 1919-1920, roughly, which is also something like people people don't really know about. There there was a a Soviet Republic in Europe, in Central Europe. Uh, Unfortunately, Hungary, Bavaria, Slovakia. uh, Bavaria, that's south of uh, southern Germany. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, after... There are other Soviets... Oh yeah, of course. I mean, Soviet in this case is just a workers' council, and then you know, a Soviet yeah. republic is more like a, an amalgamation of, of workers' councils. Mm. Uh, but basically, they ha- they have a revolution in Bavaria after the Great War, and unfortunately, the Social Democrats do what Social Democrats do, and they crush <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> same goes, of course, for call me surprised. Yeah, call me surprised exactly, and they do the same, of course, notably with with. Uh, uh, Liebknecht and uh, Rosa Luxemburg, as we mm. all know. So that is unfortunately basically destroyed in, I believe, 1921. So Neurath goes in, uh, let's say, polemic in favor of this idea. He, he starts agitating for this idea. And he then meets resistance from what will later be known as the Austrian School of Economics. And what, what the Austrian school of economics is is a is a reactionary far-right uh, school in economics it's basically founded by a guy called uh, ludwig von mises and later you get a guy called uh, friedrich hayek and basically their entire point uh, the entire argument that they put forward is a reply to neurat so that's where the, where the austrian school sort of uh, is born let's say what the austrians say is in short, you cannot run an economy without exchange. You cannot run an economy without the market. And the argument, I, I'm not sure if we have time to go into the details of it, but effectively what they're saying that if, if you can't compare like the prices of different things, then you can't decide what to choose in your company. And there's also things like, well, the goal of the company is to make profits, so you're not going to buy you know, crazily expensive things to produce your output because your consumers are not going to buy it if you buy too cheap uh, inputs. That's sort of the argument that they're making and Neurath is countering this. However, at the same time, things are of course happening in the Soviet Union or what will become the Soviet Union. 
following the success of the Russian Revolution. What they, and I believe it is Lenin that quickly deduces that what they have to do to basically not be crushed is they have to get the, the, the industrial base up and running. And in order to get that up and running, they have to electrify the entire union. And from this, we have the slogan, communism is Soviet power plus the electrification of the whole country. And as part of this, they create a, a, um, an initiative, I think would be the, the right word here, called Goelro. It's, it's the um, effort basically to, to electrify the entire union. And this in turn gives birth to what becomes known as Gosplan. This is in 1920 that Gosplan is, is founded and it is as a result of, let's say, the problems they have during electrification. So they realize that they have to organize this somehow and uh, they don't need, really know how to because there is no theory on this stuff at this time. It's basically Neurath's ideas, but I don't think the Soviets know about them at this time. It's kind of it's happening at the same time, obviously. It's 1919, 1920, 1921. But that's when, when Gosplan is founded. A couple of months, I believe, after Ludwig von Mises goes out and says that planning cannot be done. Then they do rapid industrialization. The Nazis invade. The Soviet Union crushes the Nazis. They put the first man in space. So for, for the longest time, it was basically considered that von Mises was wrong. Uh, clearly, you can do planning. I mean, if, if, if the Soviet Union couldn't have done planning, they would have been destroyed even before the Nazis invaded, like in 1928 mm-hmm. or whatever. But it clearly worked and worked for, what, 70 years, 71 years, mm. I believe. So that's kind of the view in the Soviet Union. And this... The system that they have it runs on uh, it runs on like pen paper adding machines uh, I believe they, they use the telegraph what I know is that they're sending like physical papers around in briefcases mm. so it is sort of kind of slow and there is no way to sort of automate the system there is some attempts to computerized planning in the Soviet Union over the years. It kind of starts in the 60s. They start looking into this and it it makes some headway. That's an entire story unto itself, let's say. So basically, at the same time that they're discussing computerizing planning in the Soviet Union, you also have election success in Chile, where you have Salvador Allende coming into power. And under him you have a guy called Fernando Flores and he's wanting to do planning in Allende's Chile as well but they would like to do this using this newfangled invention called the computer or by this time it's not that newfangled I mean it's 1970s so they they bring in a, a British like management consultant called Stafford Beer and he has some ideas around this. And this, this is kind of the, uh, the era when uh, sort of cybernetic management is, is taking hold. And he's helped a lot of companies uh, fix their, their slow internal coordination to, to be able to adapt more quickly to the changing reality. So what they do is they, they uh, found a system called uh, Cybersyn. And this is a, a system that runs on a couple of computers. It's something like three computers. They don't have very many of them. 
and they have a bunch of teletypes that they connect to them. So it's a, like a teleprinter. So at a workplace, you can sort of type in production numbers if there's a problem, things of that nature. Um, it's very experimental at this stage. And unfortunately, uh, due to the, the uh, coup in 1973, uh, this is, of course, entirely scrapped as soon as what's his face comes to power Pinochet he threw the project out from a helicopter yes he, he threw it from, from <laughs> oh. onto the ground oh. into the sea <laughs> oh yeah okay yeah exactly uh, but basically they, they, there is at this time roughly the 70s and 80s there is this idea that we could computerize planning and thereby both make it a lot faster you could also have more direct input from workers things that we kind of expect with how the internet is so pervasive today mm-hmm. we we expect to be able to to talk very directly to each other not have to send you know letters in the mail and, and so on but it's of course the the soviet union is dissolved in 1991 i believe kazakhstan is the last last country standing Hence why it's the best country on earth. Mm. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> My Kazakhstan friends listening to this uh, and taking it unironically and then telling me that they are best country in the earth in the, in the earth for the next like five years. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. <laughs> but uh, and also really tragically, I learned this recently, is that the, the system that they're trying to build in the Soviet Union and they, they have some success with, this is like uh, Viktor Glushkov is trying to do this. Mm. Uh, what's initially called Asper and later Gos- no, uh, Ogas. This system is actually used to speed up the the shock doctrine in the Soviet Union. So they use this. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. they use this computerized system to this. to to help with the privatization huh. uh, of the entire or like the entire state sector. Uh, it, it's absolutely crazy. Either way, this shows that you can you can plan your way to basically ruining an economy as quickly as possible. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> it's expedient, that's for sure, in, in both directions. Yeah, the the nineties in in the former Soviet Union and especially in Russia is absolutely horrif- like horrifying. It's, mm. If you talk mm. to any Russian who lived through it, it's like, yeah, no, mm. exactly. Right. The entire thing just and it, it worked. Especially you look at the numbers. I mean, the, the the growth slowed down in like under Brezhnev, but it's not like it was crashing. It's, it was functioning. Yeah. It's only like after ninety one, it's completely like GDP halves in one or two years. Like absolute, <laughs> the free market. So fantastic. Exactly right. It found a way. Yes. Found a way to basically divert all everything the people built to towards a thin sliver of basically criminal uh, criminals, black market criminals. And, and it's like I love how like they say, but not later. The line went up, but they can no longer mm. even say this now because the line went up and then war. Just like every mm. post-socialist, <laughs> pro, like internationalist uh, effort, once it's turned into capitalism, leads to physical conflict as well. So you have the economic crash, and then literally ex brothers blowing each other's brains out on the field. Fucking exactly beautiful yeah. for people interested uh, in this. Um, Europe has a fantastic uh, uh, video he made on decommunization and its consequences. He made, I believe, uh, with Balkan Odyssey. JT has a fantastic video uh, on post-Soviet Russia, and I also have a pretty decent one <laughs> on uh, on uh, what's it called, uh, modern Russia and what and the, and the shift and whatnot. So there is material out there. You guys can go and check and read through all our sources, educate yourselves. But sorry, uh, Thomas, it's all very interesting to to learn about the the, the history. But how does modern planning uh, look like? What 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 is what can people learn about today and then actually put into practice for the future? What is that looking like, this sphere? 
Right. So as the listeners are aware, we there is basically no planning outside of the DPRK at the moment. And uh, how that system works is anyone's guess. I, we don't have very much information about this, which is unfortunate. I, it would be interesting to see how they actually do it. But that's a very good question, actually. How, how do they... Okay, well, we, we, can, we can look at, for example, some of the criticisms that, that are uh, levied against the possibility to even do planning. So that's where some of the progress is being made today. That's where I've, a lot of my work is, is focused. Yeah, exactly that. Tell us more about your work and your perception of how uh, all of the advancements in tech, et cetera, et cetera, and math, et cetera, can be used to create a uh, more productive planned economy than what was done before or like a planned economy which uh, might actually work very, very well. Okay, so we can, we can start with how it works in the Soviet Union and the extent to which Gosplan could actually plan. And the answer is, it was quite limited. It's limited to certain strategic goods, a couple of thousand. I believe it's on the order of 10,000 goods. And it's, mm. you know, things yeah. like steel, the rail system. Coal. Yeah, 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 yeah. electricity, like those, those stuff. Uh, what the they important could... but boring stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> exactly my thing. Uh, what they couldn't plan are things like the entire light industry sector, what they call uh, sector B, I believe they call it. They have sector A and sector B. And all they can really do in sector B is plan things in terms of rubles. And of course, if you get a, a allocation from Gosplan saying you should produce clothes for this many rubles, you're obviously going to produce the most expensive clothes not the clothes people want. This is sort of the one of the problems that they have. Kind of a weird weird thing where they, they don't really have the computational power, again, because they're doing this with, with pen and paper for a very long time. Mm. Uh, it's only near the end that they start to, to computerize. And in the mid-1980s, you have a guy called Alec Nove who further cements this notion that planning is not possible by saying that because the the number of products in the Soviet Union was on the order of, I believe, 12 million. And because solving a linear system in 12 million equations requires, uh, well, 12 million to the third power. So that would be, what is it, 10 to the 6, 10 to the 18. Uh, yeah, a thousand billion billion com computations mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> then his point is and and also the austrians point is is that this is not possible and even with electronic computers they say this is not possible but then people like me come around and even at this time there are there are some computer scientists who who know that actually this is this is bullshit uh, you can solve the linear equations this big we actually do it every day and it's around this time that that uh, Paul Cockshot and Alan Cottrell releases their, or they start writing, and then in 91, I believe, they release Towards a New Socialism, where they directly attack this notion. Uh, and this is with 1990s uh, computer equipment. So if we, we, we can sort of take a, so what Gosplan is actually doing, they have maybe 10,000 uh, goods. Alec Nove says that you would have to do 10 million goods, and this cannot be done. And you have uh, Cockshot and Cottrell saying, yes, you can. And what I've been doing is showing that, yes, you can do it with, you know, 12 million. That's not a problem. What's really interesting is how far can you push it? And the current estimate I have is that you can do this for 100 billion different uh, production wow. methods. 
and that's on a single which is more than any yeah, yeah. Uh, which is more than any modern sophisticated economy at this point really well mm-hmm. yeah. you can think of it in terms of say you have a, a number of workplaces right so i don't know how many how many might we have a hundred million workplaces worldwide let's say we, we, we could then make space in the system for a thousand production methods per workplace so you might have different kinds of shoes that you can make or uh, you can make them in different ways or, or, or all that kind of stuff so you want to collect all that in, in a single system and by doing that you can sort of get each workplace to cooperate directly they, you don't have to go via your you know your regional planning office and then up the Gosplan and then down mm. again and wait take, several take months take the elevator <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 bring take your briefcase with you which they actually apparently did according to Red Plenty mm. uh, you can do sort of a horizontal organization there there you go exactly could you could you give us like a, a general overview of how you see a planned economy utilizing all the tech we currently have, potential future tech, utilizing all the uh, different systems, et cetera, et cetera. Just introduce our audience to how planning could work and how you would do it if uh, uh, you had the opportunity to do so. So perhaps we should start then, let's imagine, you know, a typical work day. You're, you're on, you know, you're, you're the average worker here in a, maybe you have, I don't know, 20 colleagues or 100 colleagues. And you, you have like, you have an idea of a thing you want to make. Or, a, or let's say you have a better idea of how to make anything like uh, cutting lumber or whatever. So you, you, you go on your computer and you, you log into the, to the system, the global planning system, and you set up like, okay, I, I have an idea. And you, you put in your estimate for sort of, okay, how, how much raw material would we need to make this? And how much could we make per hour, let's say? We've done a little bit of experimentation. Uh, you submit this to the system and the system goes, mm, yeah, we could use this. And you can kind of get like, okay, these people nearby would, would be able to supply you with raw materials and these other people would like your thing. So that, that's kind of one thing, uh, one way to look at it. Yeah, you might have idea like if you want to start, I don't know, if you want to start a pub or a, a restaurant, let's say. Okay, well, we're going to need some cooks. We will need various kinds of foods and this is going to change. But we kind of know in advance how much we will be wanting. So we could kind of pre-order things from the system and be like, okay, we want to have, you know, potatoes delivered this day and I don't know, eggs the other day. And then we, we kind of have a rough idea how, of, uh, how many people might be interested in this locally. And that could also be a thing like we want to start up a new workplace, let's say, because we, we, we have a suspicion that, that people will, will want this. And of course, you, you would have to then kind of convince, there, there will inevitably be a, like a political system on here, which mm. even as, at today, like if you want to start a business, you have to convince the bank to give you a loan to buy the equipment yeah and get the permits and everything else yeah yeah so you can imagine like a, a similar a similar process where okay we we have an idea me and my body we want to have a funko pop manufacturing okay funko pop <laughs> manufacturing yes uh, we, we, we're gonna need we're gonna need a lot of soy <laughs> a lot of plastic a lot of ipas of course so that that's kind of the rough i the kind of the rough discussion uh, i mean it's it's very hard to to 
get too specific about this because that's <laughs> let's say you have all these various workplaces that are sort of from day to day they're they get deliveries, they scan the deliveries, you have like a barcode on the delivery, it goes into the system, it, it checks off that it arrived. You might discover that, oh, we suddenly need a thing and you, you kind of order it, but other things you might need know in advance. This all gets collected. You have a, a big old, like a, a, a solver that works out where, when and what needs to go uh, at every point in time. And you can sort of, as, you know, assuming that people are work roughly according to this suggestion, we might call it, then things should actually turn out that way. Like you, you kind of have to assume that that the uh, the numbers you have in your computer are, of course, not the actual reality. It's just a map. It's not the terrain. So there's a human element to it, but obviously the computer will do the calculations which we not necessarily were able to do back in the day uh, manually when uh, when state planning was was attempted but okay this is super interesting on how how from the perspective of uh, um, an organization which wants to set something up in order to contribute to the local socialist economy will do it but how would uh, you know the 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 for the lack of a better term the central planning committee or the you know uh, ai uh, computer which does the planning or whatever you or the cybernetics lab or whatever you want to call it how how from their perspective do they utilize all the information points all the algorithms etc cetera, etc cetera, in order to properly plan an economy in a much more sophisticated better faster etc cetera, etc cetera, manner than uh, it was uh, attempted before and obviously you know the, the like the, the the direct answer is obviously everything is much faster and much more direct and because everybody can connect in, and tap into the system they can feed the information of what is happening at the local level from down upwards into the system but uh, obviously i'm talking uh, as as a complete uh, amateur as the kids would say noob uh unbased ungoated uh but please like for how would it uh, how would it look like from uh, from the perspective of of the system which is planning because now we learn how it looks like from from the bottom up well, how would it look like uh, from the view on top quote unquote well i'm kind of the the thing that we're gravitating towards me and uh, my 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 colleagues like mostly david Zachariah and recently luca hogberg you would set up the system and the role of the center let's say is to make sure that the system works primarily uh, so or you could say that you have a technical side and then you have a political side and there's of course you know they're, they're going to overlap to an extent but you kind of want or our point anyway is that you want problems to resolve themselves as locally as possible you don't really want to bother like your regional political organization, whatever you might call it. It might be your regional Soviet or whatever you call it. You kind of want those decisions that are taken there to be more general, because obviously people can't like decide over every little detail. So if you say in terms of like on the technical side, let's say, you have things like, okay, you have to ensure that the, the data can come in and that the computed allocations uh, can flow back out again and that this this process works uh, you want to make sure that the you know all the computers are working you have backups you have some way to to distribute this so it works so that's that's one side of this the other side is of course 
you will have to have a, a political body that makes certain decisions that apply to everyone. And these will have to be very, very general uh, decisions. So things like environmental constraints, for example. You would have to make an actual decision like where, how much carbon dioxide are we going to have in the atmosphere by 2050? What you can do then is you can feed this into the system and the system can give you a yes or no answer as to whether that is actually possible. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of, if, if you set up the, the technical side of it correctly, then the political side gets much easier because you can just directly ask these kinds of questions like, okay, how quickly can we get the climate uh, situation under control? And you would know like these are... To, to a certain level of clarity, you would know if we choose this particular policy in this particular direction, this is what the results are going to be. If we choose um, an alternative, this is what the results are going to be. And even more importantly, once you input whatever decision you have made using the information and data that you've received from the system, it will then do better at planning the direction in which you want to go when it comes to you know the feedback look that loop that it gives back to the uh, to the you know the the, the citizens the the laborers the working class etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. am i getting that right right uh, roughly so i mean you could get really non intuitive answers out of the system like uh, like okay we we have to um, uh, keep get the environmental uh, the environment under control so one thing that it might figure out is like okay those guys that are working with uh, i don't know petrochemicals they can shorten their work week by 15 hours they can just go home and we can pay them just to stay home or whatever then it'll still sort of make sense it's in, internally coherent let's say within a certain you know you have to always assume that there is some inaccuracy in the data but you know within a certain percentage it'll be fine so that that's why we are especially adamant about you have to separate the the planning the 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 allocation of resources and kind of the system might suggest new jobs to people who are looking for jobs that those kind of things those you would want to separate from the actual means of payment so that's kind of a you can choose to pay people to stay home <laughs> but you you have to sort of make sure that the everything balances out all the the work hours for example balance out in the end so there is a bit of uh, politics that gets in there that the system cannot really deal with it can only like make suggestions and then you have to you know at some level make a decision somewhere so I and I'm sure a lot of our audience probably have a a difficult time kind of conceptualizing how exactly things get planned on a technical level. So I was watching uh, some of your videos before before this uh, chat and you broke it down like the actual method of of determining the plan with um, an equation s times x is greater than or equal to d. So I understand that, that x is the plan, correct? So how exactly do you go about you know, determining those variables? So you're sitting down at your machine. What do you plug in? How do you, how do you start the process of creating a plan? Right. So you need two things. So one is you need the what are called the technical coefficients. So you, you need to know how things are made. So, you know, the ingredient lists that go into your Funko Pops, 
you know mm -hmm. you need the paint you need the plastic all that stuff and you, you can work that out yeah. you know a priori or you can do statistics so that's the left hand side of the system that's the s matrix as, as i've labeled it and then on the right hand side you have demand so you would want to measure or ask people or you know you have a pre-order system for example or, or a local store all these kind of data sources let's say that feed into the system roughly what people's demands are hopefully as accurate as possible so that's why you might want to have a like a pre-order system like a kind of an amazon system you you put in you know a, a mail order that would be great because mm. then the and the earlier you put it in you'd be like you're like okay in three months i want this the better the system can uh, accommodate you i would like to also add one one bit uh, which is in, in deeper literature on this stuff uh, but AI would be a very big aspect of, of, of this as well. Um, so that prior to the, like the most difficult period of a planning uh, setup will be the first couple of months, basically. And after which um, you can have a set, an a, a directed AI system set up in which all these orders come in and out at regular intervals and it measures them. And then it will be able to, as the data grows, make basically incredibly accurate assessments or, or, um, uh, predictions uh, of what kind of happens when, where, etc. Along with this, you'd have a direct system of, of uh, feedback from uh, individual communities. You can have consumer co-ops, you can have it from stores, etc., etc. And all these different accounting systems would also feed into some overarching, basically, planning body, um, which, of course, can be democratically organized, horizontal, blah, blah, blah. This is a discussion for another time. But the point being is that there is the, the, the idea of it being like something that you have to uh, know that you want lettuce three months from now isn't exactly the 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 point I think Thomas is trying to make, or most planning um, advocates are trying to make. But more, this is more appropriate, for example, in grand planning. For example, let's say you're trying to plan uh, the building of a new city. But uh, this is me getting ahead of myself. Uh, I just want to add the the nuance. Uh, please go on. If we if we just go back to the the previous thing here, so you have your left hand side, you have your your matrix there, and you have your demand. So what the solver does is it, it uh, figures out uh, a vector x that we can call a vector of allocations, or we could call it the plan. And this, uh, anytime the left-hand side or the right-hand side changes, and they do change whenever you put in new data into the system. So whenever you, whenever you buy a, a sack of potatoes at the store, it changes things a little, little bit, and then these allocations also change a little bit. And you want this to be quick, because you, you know if, if this takes a year, then <laughs> you, you obviously things are going to get very, it'll be very different, difficult to keep the system together. And that side is, is like, that's the purely computational side. And that, mm. that is a very straightforward, relatively straightforward problem. It uses what's called linear programming. And this, is uh, basically it's linear al algebra and computers are very good at linear algebra. We have an entire department here at the university that does linear algebra on like uh, computer clusters. That's a very, that's sort of the easy bit of it. So how you compute the thing. So what I'm more recently saying is that, that the more tricky thing is all the, all the human elements, all the political stuff and how you, you know, how do you get people involved in the system? Because we can, we can work all the math out, but uh, the politics, that's uh, a lot more difficult. Mm. So 
assuming that every we can get everyone you know roughly on the same page everyone realizes oh this makes it a lot easier to run my business um you're leveraging this tremendous amount of data that's flowing into your computational systems and you've got the math and sorted out in one of your videos you state that one of the goals is to make planning accessible to everyone how exactly would that work because to my understanding the machines required to run this kind of these kind of calculations are tremendously powerful like i'm i'm here and i edit 8k raw video on a machine with 64 gigs of ram but i believe the machines you guys are working on are what you know multiple terabytes three terabytes of ram something like that so would it be accessible to the average person would everyone need a special machine installed from some kind of you know central planning machine building committee how exactly would that work oh yeah that's a very good question so it is a bit of an open question uh, to what extent you can distribute these computations so what i've been i've i've been having like a rather a rather simplified view of the uh, you know how like I, i'm just assuming okay we we have one or more computers in tight mm-hmm. You know, they're physically located close to each other, so you can connect them with actual proper networks. But even a modern, like a computer with, uh, like my my laptop has 16 gigabytes of RAM. That's enough for ooh, at least 10 million variables. Like, okay, it it's you can do a lot with even relatively modest hardware. But the trickiest thing is you you kind of don't want to have to make the investment of the actual machine. Oh, oh, right. I figured out actually a very <laughs> a lot easier. Just pretend it's in the cloud. So, so you have like a planning cloud, and you let's say you log into a, a front end over your web browser, and it just you know it takes care of all the heavy lifting for you. And you you could you know you could make sure you have a regional backup system for this, and you you can do like because um, there will be a problem. Like everyone cannot log into the exact same computer at the same time. Like a billion people on the same computer, that's going to be difficult. But you could imagine, you know, you you have a municipal little cluster of a hundred computers. That's not inconceivable. And you, maybe you log into that, and you do, you know, you, you make a rough thing. It maybe maybe in a week it gets synchronized centrally, and then you know, but that's uh, perhaps uh, overly technical. Okay. So no one, we wouldn't require, you know, supercomputers tied into each business, right? We could have fairly modest hardware that would all be able to communicate on on fairly standard networks. And then all that information would be aggregated um, and fed into a presumably larger machine that would run the, the more important nationwide uh, side. Yeah. The access to the cloud. Yeah, well, shared between everyone, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's better. The cloud metaphor is better. Just kind of pretend that okay. it's just yeah. there, yeah, because yeah. we can do that. Uh, but then there are things like, okay, you want to make sure it's resilient, so you don't want to have it completely mm-hmm. tied down to literally a single data center that someone just goes yeah. with a pair of scissors and cuts the power. <laughs> uh, right. But so that can be sorted, and there's all kinds of systems you can look at that are similar in this that do kind of distribute the computation. You have like folding at home, uh, cryptocurrencies or kind of a distributed computation things. So that's why I say like the, the technical side that can be solved. That's not a huge problem. The, the bigger problem is the, the political and the, the sort mm. of human, mm. the human protocols. The digital pro- protocols, that's uh, relatively easy, let's say. 
Well, on the political side of things, we already have, even in you know hyper-capitalist countries like the United States, you have a lot of large businesses that rely on some form of planning, right? Like Walmart and Amazon presumably use some form of planning to make sure that you know their distribution and production chains uh, remain efficient. Is that you'd say that's that's some form of planning as well, right? Uh, yes, they actually have really, really sophisticated uh, internal planning, and this. This actually goes for, for every single company in capitalism is planned internally. So you, you don't have you know, your HR department haggling with your engineering department or anything like that. Mm-hmm. They're all, all you know, working a, a, a core, you know, towards a common goal. And that is perhaps another way to look at this is yeah, you try to view the world as a single workplace. I believe Lenin makes this point. He he views the entire Soviet Union as a single workplace. Maybe Hakim knows about this. Yeah, essentially. I mean, it depends on what point you're referring to, but post-NEP for sure. Um, it's supposed to be considered, uh, at least with the state monopoly on all the major industries, it's supposed to be considered as one large workplace. And that's why the planning aspect is considered to cover every aspect, every section of the economy. Yeah, because if you don't do planning, you have to fall back to exchange. And that's why there was exchange between uh, the country and the state in the realm of uh, cooperatives, uh, because at that era you still had you know peasantry and you didn't want to forcefully incorporate them into the state. So you, they want to slowly turn them into basically uh, like an industrial proletariat of an agri- agricultural form or agricultural laborers instead of basically cooperatives who own their own land. It gets very complicated and sophisticated, but. Uh, yeah, you're you're very right, but the the, the nuance is very yeah, deep. and I, I believe Sorry, go on. yeah, I believe also in the the Korshos system is where you find a lot of the light industry because they're they're using money as a kind of a not generalizes it abstracts uh, a lot of these mm. things and basically what money does is it just collapses all the information down to a single number. It's like the the price of the thing. So you don't capture like the carbon emissions, for example, or you have to price the carbon emissions, but then you're right back to collapsing it into just the price again. You, you don't, you're not actually able to capture the new ones, which is why you want to do planning. Like, because uh, these concepts are a little bit difficult to communicate. You're wanting to do things entirely in terms of use values as much as possible, because that that gets at the problems directly. So for example, carbon emissions, that's a, we could view that as a use value, let's say. A negative use value, but a, but a use, use value nonetheless. Very interesting. Uh, I had one, one uh, uh, question I think that a lot of people who are listening in on this probably also had, and it's planning is incredibly abstract when you get to the details of it. And when you just want to explain to a layman audience, ends up being just kind of, a lot of political talk and not enough like quote-unquote economic substance but that's just because once you get into the nitty-gritty details of it it's just a lot of math basically yeah. um and a lot of organizational work uh, and that's very evident in your in your work by the way um that's why i highly suggest people check out your blog and your videos and they're going to see that it does get very complex uh and very interesting but here's my question for people who are interested in this who would like to learn more about this and learn more about the technical aspects of this stuff, how planning is actually done, the, the math of it, and everything else. Is there any books you could recommend specifically or any courses, for example, that would be helpful for the future for somebody who might be, want to get into this, etc., uh, etc.? Et I don't think there's a course for like the math of planning. You kind of have to look at the literature. Um, you do have some books, like you have uh, Kantorovich, uh, Leonid Kantorovich, who was a... a 
a Soviet mathematician. He worked a lot on, on this kind of stuff. Uh, so he has a book called The Best Use of Economic Resources. And he, he goes through how to do like um, linear programming, for example, to, I believe he uses a plywood factory as an example, and how to make the best use of the machines you have available, like if you have a, a different kinds of lathes, for example. Uh, so that, that's a very sort of hands-on on how, how these um, stuff work at, uh, at a, you know, a very micro level. But perhaps one way to explain um, the concept to sort of more, more lay people is imagine that instead of buying things, you requisition them. So you're, you're, you're putting in like a requisition order to the system, like, okay, we need this and that and this and that. And, uh, you know, it could be printer paper or whatever. And it just gets sort of added to the cost of your workplace. And it kind of, it all kind of averages out in the end. So you don't have to worry about all these. Yeah, th that could be one, one way to explain it. Another way could be, again, to, to point to the, the chaotic nature of the market and the business cycle and the present situation with the electricity prices in Europe, for example, it you know, from one, one day you can have the prices one and a half euros per kilowatt hour. The next day it's minus five cents. It's ridiculous. And you can kind of go with like, okay, yes, you know, we have, <laughs> you could have an economic system where you have certainty for quite a long time. You know that as long as there's no natural mm -hmm. disaster, and even if there's a natural disaster, you know that you have reserves of this and that already available. So uh, that could be one way to sort of sell it to, to the layperson, let's say. Well, more than selling it, I mean, people are actively interested and want to learn about yeah. it. Of course, people know about Cockshot's work toward the new socialism. There's a great book uh, on planning uh, uh, called The People's Republic of Walmart. Uh, which covers some aspects of intra-firm planning uh, that's practiced under capitalism, for example, amongst other works. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking more along these lines. If you had any uh, novel, uh, what's it called, uh, suggestions, aside from, for example, Kentorovich's uh, writings. Well, I mean, it, it kind of depends on how technical you want to get. You can look at the, for example, the literature on, on linear programming is very deep. Um, and if, if people want like papers on this, they, they can get in contact with me and I have a whole bunch, but then, yeah, basically you have to go and, and look at the, look at the actual literature. I, I typically, I have, I have air. Can I, can, can people hear my printed, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> printed papers on, you know, I typically print them and I have a whole stack, I don't know, 500 pages of mathematical mm. papers on this stuff. And I'm, I'm almost. Uh, I'm always ca caught up to like 1988 or so. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, it, you jump around a little bit because these things change. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's an entire field. Like uh, optimization is an entire field. And you get into like, uh, you can have non-convex planning. You know, how do you handle economics of scale in the system? Uh, because that turns out to be mathematically difficult. Um, how do you plan like capital investments? Uh, turn, like when do you invest in a new production plant somewhere and where and how many of them and all that stuff. That's a lot more difficult and that's mm, for more mathematically minded listeners that might be something to look at as well. I, I would uh, also like to add, um, I remember uh, Cockshot in one of his talks also, he. Uh, he says, like in a very plain language, he says, the math isn't what's missing. We know how to 
plan even very highly sophisticated and large economies uh, and we have the technology and all that to do it the what's currently missing isn't the the will or the motivation to plan really uh it isn't the lack of methods what is missing is modern software for planning and and i want to ask you this since you also have your hand a bit in software development what what does the future look like for that in which you could not only for high level planning for for example for state like for governments but also for to dem- democratize planning so even regular day everyday people could at least play some role or at least look directly into how the system is planned the economy is planned is there something software wise being created or ideas of it at least uh, there are some loose things like there's a project called uh, Orgas demo uh, written by a, a russian guy uh, but that's that's not released yet unfortunately but uh, I am in contact with him. I forget his name, but if people are curious about that, they can go to ogasdemo.ru and it'll have information in, well, it's in Russian, so. Uh, <laughs> but he, he, he is looking at this. Th- this is why I mentioned, uh, or maybe I didn't mention the, the need for a inventory system. Kind of the first step is you, you need to know what you actually have. Before you can do anything else, you need to know mm. what you have. You need to be able to register where things are coming in and where, when things are leaving your warehouse or your workplace or whatever. That's one thing. And try to uh, be able to, to build statistics. And this doesn't really exist. So that's something that I would be interested in developing. And once you start having that, you can also start putting in um, these production methods that I mentioned, like all, all these technical coefficients, you can start putting in like, okay, to, to make a shoe, we need leather and we need rubber and this and that, and we can make this and that many of them, we think, or maybe, you know, maybe you put in a, a range that you think you can make, like I, we think we can make between 10 and 20 pairs of shoes per hour, you know, to, to give the system a little bit of, a little bit of leeway. And that probably you would want to do over the browser because everyone has a web browser. It's, you know, it's ubiquitous. So that's probably the way to do it. So, you know, you log into a website, you get an account somehow, I don't know, specify your locality, things like that. But again, it it doesn't exist at the moment. So it would likely take a couple of years to write it, I suspect. But it's not like it's not impossible. You could you could do it. You could write a thing that takes data from users that they basically the metaphor I've been using is a wiki for production. Mm. Mm. So you know you contribute. Everyone contributes their little thing uh, that they're good at, and they know how how this um, area of the economy works, you know, roughly. And you you can get kind of um, comedy of the commons effect where. Since everyone has their own little thing that they're good at, so long as you can get the system to coordinate the production between, you know, the, these workplaces or whatever, you, you can get a very big, you can start getting economics of scale out of it. You can start getting to where you're actually making better use of the labor power compared to the market. And that's where, you know, that, that's where the real potential for this lies. But it's, of course, it's a big problem. Like, how do you get people first of all to understand the concept and to be interested in it you have to have a thing that people can actually use and so on and that's why I think it's it'll be important to somehow lead by example to have some kind of like pilot project or or something like that so that's 
also what I'm trying to do at the moment that I'm talking to various people. Um, I don't know how much I can talk about that, but there, there are, you know, there, there are, there's a bunch of loose bits that have to be sort of sewn together. Very, very interesting and very exciting. It's a shame that we don't, we can't just keep talking about this forever because there's many more questions and many more things to delve into. But I guess I can give a very quick summary for anybody who's still kind of on the, not on the fence, but kind of confused by the entire idea. So in general, the idea of economic planning is that we don't want to rule our societies and our economies along uh, the dictates of the anarchy of the market, right? Uh, According to basically uh, unpredictable fluctuations or even worse, fluctuations that could be uh, negatively um, manipulated by certain actors within the economy uh, in order to basically develop the, uh, to, to only benefit themselves, amongst many other things, to get rid of the boom and bust cycles and regular recessions and uh, all the negative sides of uh, market economies. Um, so the idea instead is that you uh, bring in a system which plans basically the vast majority of uh, inputs of an economy. Uh, this can be done over several ways, of course, even the possibility of planning every single thing. Uh, there is in a, not even a too distant future, a possibility of this even being done. But if you want to distill it down to something far more feasible just today, the vast majority, of, if not all, of minor and major inputs in an economy, for example, steel and gas and coal and nuts and bolts and uh, wooden splinters and whatever else you might need, different forms of plastics, different forms of solutions required in, manu- in manufacture, all these base ingredients that would then go into making maybe 85 to 95 percent of uh commodities both uh, for heavy industry as well as light industry all of these can go into a system that directly plans for quantity quality duration as well as um time uh tables for everything that needs to be produced in the end what this allows for is rather than the market and basically not knowing even two weeks ahead what the prices of something would be or the availability of something might be, you can uh, institute a plan plan in which you require a certain set of regular deliveries and regular rates of production, regular rates of extraction of, uh, for example, uh, minerals or whatever else in order to plan a year ahead, five years ahead, 10 years ahead, 20 years ahead, so that major projects and uh, sustained development and stable development can be, well, created uh, over, you know, the the, the time period that you establish. That's what the five-year plans were, the Soviet Union and China, other countries, but the possibility of uh, computerized planning allows us to do things far more impressive and far more um, all-encompassing than what was possible with basically just pen and paper, as was done in the Soviet Union. Uh, All of this, of course, would allow for things that we saw in previous economies, greater rates of economic growth, less economic waste overall, less environmental damage, as well as better planning entirely uh, for society uh, in regards to education, healthcare, uh, ecology, uh, amongst many other things. And in the end, even the... um, Uh, International Climate uh, Conference uh, that recently had stated that 1.5 Celsius uh, rise is basically unavoidable at this point. Even they said, unless there's significant and clear directed planning that occurs on a global scale, so essentially it's the solution that uh, Lenin and then afterwards Stalin, all the people underneath them, um, had advocated for. Uh, So... TLDR, <laughs> planning is good, markets are cringe, uh, and there's a lot, a lot of literature 
that is very fascinating as well as very tiring to read through because uh, some of the some of it requires competence that is highly specialized but as with most things if it's worth it then you'd learn it right mm. Uh, with all that being said, this was a very nice episode. Of course, uh, we'll, shall in the future, have other uh, guests as well, Thomas, uh, if you'd like to be back, uh, back on so that we could discuss these in further details. But for the current time, I think that's enough for today. Uh, Thomas, do you have anything that you'd like to shout out in particular? Of course, the things you shout out at the beginning, please do that again. Yeah, no, I, um, I've been recently, I've been posting on casperforum.org, which is a, a web forum for basically um, classical political economy for, for people to exchange questions and ideas. So uh, shout out to to the people at the Casper Forum. Also, I, I've been listening to General Intellect Unit, which is uh, the podcast of the cybernetic Marxists. It's on the Emancipation Network. So shout out to those those fine people. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, check out my, my website and my YouTube channel and Feel free, feel free to contact me if uh, you have any questions. I wouldn't mind uh, uh, showing up uh, again in the future. I would definitely love to have you on. Of course, all the links uh, and other things that uh, Tom shout out will be in the uh, description box or the show notes uh, of the episode. Uh, with all that being said, this has been the program. I'm Hakim. I'm JT. I'm Yugopnik. And I'm uh, Thomas Harin. And... Uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to use math. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. No! <laughs> <laughs>